0: Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with Jean-Louis Vincent, MD, PhD, FCCM, about the article, The Impact of Hospital and Intensive Care Unit Organizational Factors on Outcome in Critically Ill Patients, Results from the EPIC-2 Study, published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Vincent works as a professor of intensive care medicine in the Department of Intensive Care at the French-speaking University of Brussels in Brussels, Belgium. He is also president of the World Federation of Societies of Intensive and Critical Care Medicine. It's, of course, an honor for me to be able to speak with him. The article itself is a international study that looks at various facets of intensive care unit organization on the outcome of critically ill patients. So I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Vincent. Dr. Vincent, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. So this paper is fascinating because it looks at the international data about the way we all take care of critically ill patients. And I wanted to set the stage by discussing with you the EPIC-2 study. Maybe we could just spend a little time discussing the design behind EPIC-2, the overall aim of that, and the major outcomes of the EPIC-2 study itself before we delve into the specifics of this paper about the organizational factors.
1: Yes, with pleasure and thank you very much for inviting me to share these thoughts with everybody. As you mentioned, I am president of the World Federation and I feel it is important to know more about intensive care medicine around the globe and how it is practiced in all five continents. And with this in mind, we did already a few years ago this EPIC-2 study after a first EPIC-1 study we did a long time ago. The EPIC-2 study was a one-day prevalence study to have some kind of a snapshot of what's going on in the various intensive care units around the globe. And it's fantastic to see the response rate as we could have 1,265 ICUs participating from 75 countries. And so we gathered data on about 14,000 patients. And the first paper was published in the JAMA, and it was about the rate of infections in the various intensive care units. But we have several other papers out of this large database. And this study recently published in Critical Care Medicine is one of them. We took advantage of uh, all the data collected to analyze some characteristics of intensive care units around the world. And it's, again, fantastic to see the response rate to this kind of question because nobody was paid. Actually, this EPIC-2 study was conducted without any dollar either given to ICUs or obtained for data analysis. We did the entire data analysis in Brussels and for free because we have an academic interest in this. And it's absolutely wonderful to see how ICU doctors would like to participate in such a study. So yeah, the the paper we published in Critical Care Medicine is a quite valuable source of information about intensive care units.
0: Well, it's, it's an impressive effort. Yes, why don't we delve deeper into this particular study then? So maybe I could have you discuss your study design in terms of analyzing the various organizational factors, please.
1: Well, the study design is pretty simple, as we just ask people to collect data over a 24-hour period. So it is indeed a snapshot of your ICU on a given day. And we collected data about units as well as about patients who were in the unit on the day of the study. And regarding the units, we could actually see some differences in terms of, uh, let's say, bed availability. It's quite clear that North America is one of the regions of the world where there is the largest bed availability, And as you may have heard, Ludwig, there is now even a discussion about the possibility of reducing the number of ICU beds, especially in large cities in the U.S., because perhaps there are too many of these ICU beds which are no longer well-staffed because there is a lack of uh, ICU doctors. And with this in mind... Yeah, an intensive is 24 hours a day, was available in 87% of ICUs. So this is a reassuring figure because we are concerned about the fact that in many hospitals, actually during the night or during weekends, there may be a substantial lack of ICU physicians. In terms of closed versus open ICU, in the U.S., only 83% of ICUs were closed. You may say only 83, that seems quite a large number, but for many people, including myself, that figure should be close to 100% because open ICUs should no longer be proposed. I mean, uh, we have learned so much about the improved quality of care when an ICU doctor was available, that it's no longer reasonable to propose an open ICU model any longer. Nevertheless, 83% is not bad, of course, and it shows that also in the US people are moving towards a closed ICU system. Now, the a very striking observation of our study was that the number of nurses per patient was an independent determinant of outcome, in that when there was more than one nurse for one patient and an half, or if you like, more than two nurses for three patients, then the risk of death was significantly reduced. And this was by multivariable analysis. Because by univariable analysis, there were some other factors, including being a university hospital, for instance. But this disappeared in the multivariable analysis, and only the number of nurses remained. And that's clearly something that we like to see, especially when we have confidence, when we trust our nurses and when we are confident that our nurses are good but it also shows the importance of the human factor remaining even in era of uh, computerized surveillance and protocols etc having good people around can still make a difference in terms of outcome so we should make sure that we keep enough nurses in our intensive care units Even though the costs are, of course, quite high, we know that in our budgets, personnel costs represent a substantial fraction, maybe 75% of the entire budget or something like that. It may depend, of course, on your region, but globally, it's the vast majority of expenses. So it could be actually appealing to try to decrease the number of uh, staff personnel in the intensive care units. But this is actually not a very good idea if we want to keep the mortality rates low. So that was the most striking observation of our large study. And these numbers were borne out from the entire worldwide analysis. It's not observed just in the U.S., or in, on, in another part of the globe, it's really a universal finding.
0: Yes. Let's talk about each of those factors a little bit more, more closely. And I wanted to summarize for our audience the various factors that were analyzed in the study. So the type of setting was looked at, academic versus non-academic hospitals. The Volume or the capacity of the hospital was looked at in terms of moderate density, high density, the type of staffing involved in terms of both the physicians and the nurses. In terms of physicians, the study looked at a closed ICU setting versus an open, uh, daytime staffing versus nighttime staffing if it's a closed model, and for nurses, as you just elaborated, the staffing ratio involved. And you also looked at the case mix of the various ICUs. Are they medical? Are they medical-surgical trauma ICUs? And you also analyzed the data using both univariate and multivariate analysis. And in the univariate analysis, several factors did correlate with outcome. Is that correct? Yes, 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 it is correct. Yeah, so it looked like there was a positive correlation between good outcome with an academic center and the nursing staffing ratio, like you said. But in the multivariate analysis, the one factor that was significant was the nursing staffing ratio. And that nursing staffing ratio was higher than one nurse for 1.5 patients. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about the physician staffing pattern? Because like you said, there is a lot of literature in the critical care world about the utility and the benefit of a closed model. Now, somebody outside the critical care world, I suppose, could say, well, you are all invested in having critical care physicians staffing the ICUs. The data for this study didn't Form particular conclusions about this, but at the same time, the number of ICUs that had an open model was extremely small. It was 15%. So I think your paper's conclusion was that there wasn't the statistical capability to really compare the two. Is that how you feel about it?
1: Well, yeah, but you know, in uh, when you try to compare the systems around the globe, you are confronted with difficulties to exactly define what every member of the staff really has in terms of of background and training. Because you may have, in some ICUs, a doctor spending just one or two hours in the ICU before going in the operating room, to anesthetize patients or before going to the outpatient clinic to do cardiology or pneumology. So what do you mean? Well, this doctor is there, but how much time did he spend in the ICU? All of this is very complicated. And actually, even for the number of nurses, it's a bit difficult because you sometimes have assistant nurses in addition to registered nurses to RN. And uh, how do you count this? is tough. We did our best, of course, to try to take it into account. But in France, for instance, you have a number of assistant assistant nurses who feed the patients, who assist in washing the patients, etc., whereas in other countries, like in Belgium, for instance, the nurses would do everything themselves. So, you know, we must be cautious about all this. And then in the U.S., you may even speak about the physician assistants and the hospitalists. So I, I you know, when, when we go into these details, it's becoming really difficult to make a very consistent scheme That could be applied everywhere in the world. Right. Now, you've been very involved
0: on a very high level for critical care. So you are probably more aware of certain historical trends as well. So I'm curious, have you noticed, for example, any trends that have differed on the different continents in terms of ICU practice? Is there a trend toward more physician care in the United States, North America? Is there more in Europe or in Asia? And obviously, a lot of that is also influenced by each continent's own economic constrictions.
1: Well, yeah, it's not only the economical constrictions. It's, as you say, the history that may be different and the healthcare systems that may be different. Well, as you know, in the US, of course, the vast majority of critical care doctors have a background in uh, respiratory medicine, DASH internal medicine, and even surgeons are more numerous in the ICU than anesthesiologists, if you look at membership of uh, critical care medicine, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and some other databases. Whereas in Europe and in most places in the world, anesthesiologists represent the vast majority of uh, critical care physicians. But in terms of trends everywhere, there is a trend towards a recognition of uh, intensivists, as we say today, or critical care doctors as a specialty as such. So that the background, the primary specialty being internal medicine, respiratory disease or anesthesia or something else doesn't matter so much. As long as people are properly trained and spent enough time in the intensive care unit in Belgium, for instance, to keep your specialty in critical care medicine you need to spend at least 50% of your professional time in the intensive care unit precisely to avoid a situation where people would go through the ICU to give some orders and then uh, shout that they are available but go elsewhere in the hospital. So that's, uh, that's something that we have seen evolving over the years throughout the world, and I think it's a good uh, evolution. We also see less and less specialized ICUs, and hopefully the U.S. will follow that trend to group the ICUs in one given department first, as it is the case in Pittsburgh, for instance. It's a, a kind of model in the U.S., but then beyond that, to group the various ICUs and have non-specialized intensive care units, as it is the case in many other places in the world. Well, here in Brussels, for instance, we have a 35-bed department of intensive care with five ICUs, number one, two, three, four, five, but the ICUs are not specialized. We don't speak about a cardiac ICU, a neuro ICU, a respiratory ICU, because we feel that does not make sense. If a patient comes with, uh, let's say, a neurological problem, you may admit the patient in a neuro ICU, but the patient may become septic, and that could be the predominant problem. And the patient may be admitted for sepsis in a cardiovascular ICU, but may become comatous or develop an intracranial hemorrhage and become primarily a neurological problem. So it doesn't make sense to separate these patients in various ICUs. It has primarily a historical reason because the surgeons wanted to keep their hands on their patients and the medical doctors in the hospital, the like. But this, if we think about it, doesn't make sense because the problems that the ICU patients present are all the same. We are speaking about shock, perfusion failure, respiratory failure, electrolyte imbalances, feeding, etc., etc. These problems are the same everywhere. And that's the reason why, personally, I don't even think that we should separate medical and surgical ICUs Surgical patients are medical patients with a scar. Otherwise, the problems they develop are exactly the same ones as the problems a medical patient would develop. So that's also a trend that we can see throughout the world. Hopefully, the number of ICU physicians in many places is quite sufficient and in many european places we have almost too many icu doctors because people like that kind of activity and they are proud actually of taking care of critically ill patients this is different in the u.s where the number of icu physicians is unfortunately insufficient perhaps because icu doctors do not make enough money in the US hospitals, Uh, anesthesiologists are not interested in clinical care medicine because they make more money in the operating room. That could be part of the equation. But clearly, intensive care medicine is appreciated by many doctors around the world, especially now that we are also better organized. And that's another very important element In the past, people taking care of critical ill patients often had to stay longer in the evening because there was one unstable patient requiring all their attention and energy to take care of them. But nowadays, we are much more organized. We make rounds in a more structured fashion so people can take over and can manage these patients very well when we are away, and so we, our process of care has helped to keep good quality 24 hours a day, and I think this has tremendously improved the quality of care in our ICUs. And finally, the other members of the team, the nurses, the physiotherapists, etc., are also much better trained and much more knowledgeable than in the past, so that we can much more interact at the bedside in a much better way, in a much more efficient way, a little bit like the pilot and the co-pilot in the cockpit. They help each other primarily by checking what the other does Mm -hmm. and raising questions. Are you sure you have not forgotten this? Are you sure you have taken care of that? And checklists are so important because we as human beings tend to sometimes forget things. That's human nature. We cannot avoid this. So we do need checklists to make sure that we do not forget important things. And that's where the team can really help. I don't mind when a nurse comes to me and says, are you sure you have not forgotten anti-ulcer drug in this particular patient who has some coagulopathy and is mechanically ventilated and my answer could be oh yes thank you oh yeah i forgot about this exactly as it could be well yeah thank you for reminding me i thought of it but i think the patient does not need anti-ulcer medication at this stage but at least there was a check there was someone or a process raising the question haven't you forgotten something? And that's really of great importance. It's really good to hear your
0: thoughts about all of this and to uh, point out to people like me the historical aspect of this. Thank you so much. And I wanted to discuss that a little bit further about the team aspect of critical care. It sounds like you are very much a fan of that and I really appreciate your emphasis on the checklists because I do think that a lot of us are moving toward that. And before we started the official podcast and you and I were just chatting, we were discussing checklists versus the concept of a care protocol. And you are a proponent of checklists, but not as much of this concept of protocols. Is that true? Or maybe I can have you discuss that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I think it's a very important and very timely question. Protocols can be very helpful for one very simple things. Glucose control using insulin. You can have a protocol. You can have a software helping you to adjust your insulin doses to maintain glucose levels within a given range. Likewise, adapting the doses of heparin to APTT does not require a human brain. You need a good protocol and everybody can follow the protocol. There is no really important addition to a simple program to adjust the doses of these medications. So that's one thing. The second thing is that protocols could be helpful whenever we know exactly what to do. If we speak about... Cardiac arrest. Cardiac arrest can largely be protocolized or the early management of myocardial infarction, that could be protocolized. But in critical care medicine, especially with such a heterogeneous patient population, I'm afraid that we cannot have strong rules for patient management. Let's speak about management of ARDS. How many variables do you want to know to manage this patient properly? You want to know the PaO2, SpO2, with the FiO2, with the PEEP. You want to speak about tidal volumes, but you need to know plateau pressure, resistances. I mean, there are so many things that you would like to integrate. If we could develop a protocol to manage these patients Then we would go into a phase of artificial intelligence and then we would no longer need a doctor at the bedside because the machine would replace our brains. But we are still relatively far away from that time and now we still need a good doctor at the bedside to think about the respiratory management of these patients. Otherwise, you can only stay at the stage of a Very, very simple principles like use small tidal volumes. How small, we don't know. People say six cc per kilogram, but in some cases it may be too high. In some other cases, you may afford seven cc per kilogram. And how do you adjust PEEP? Some people say you just look at the degree of oxygenation and that's how you adjust the PEEP. But that's oversimplification. It's good in the first stage but you will need more thinking about it. So if you try to replace the doctor by a protocol, I'm afraid that the quality of care will actually go down because doctors will think less and less at the bedside and rely more and more on what is in a computer. However, checklists are very important, and I already alluded to the importance of checklists in the cockpit of an airplane when the pilot and the co-pilot go over that list to make sure that they are not missing anything. And this is the same in the ICU. Haven't we forgotten something? At rounds, it is such an important aspect of our discussions. That's why we put all our brains together at the bedside. It is to make sure that we have thought of everything. We are not missing something of importance and for some simple things I think all members of the ICU staff should go over some very simple questions to make sure that we don't forget the basics and we have developed many years ago the fast hug approach and I published it in Critical Care Medicine a number of years ago now where the first letters of the fast hug stand for F, feeding. It's not just feeding yes or no. It's are we sure that the patient is getting enough feeding, enough calories, and perhaps the, the proper type of caloric intake. A and S, it's analgesia and sedation, but not so much is the patient receiving enough. No, it's more the other way around are we sure that the patient is not receiving too much of these drugs that could alter their level of consciousness and perhaps keep them on mechanical ventilation for too long or in the ICU for too long and perhaps increase the risk of delirium. So analgesia sedation to keep it minimal. The T is thromboembolism prophylaxis. Do we have... uh, Uh, subcutaneous heparin, or at least stockings to try to limit the risks. The H is head of the bed elevated. Haven't we forgotten to raise the head of the bed, in particular in mechanically ventilated patients, in particular to limit the risks of ventilator-associated pneumonia? It's very simple, and sometimes I see in ICUs around the world that there are still patients lying flat in their bed when there is no reason not to raise the head of the bed. U is ulcer prevention. Should the patient receive some ulcer prevention? Not all patients need it. So let's raise the question. What about this patient here? And G, the last letter of the fast hug mnemonic, G stands for Glucose, not so much did I check the glucose, I hope that everybody does it, but does the patient require large amounts of insulin to maintain glucose within the the range that we like to have? Because sometimes we realize that a patient is receiving huge amounts of insulin and it may be the right time to shift to a long acting insulin preparation to decrease the amount of Actrapid or regular insulin that the patient is is receiving. So this fast-hug approach is an approach for the entire team, hoping that indeed the nurses in particular will take it and will raise these uh, particular questions. We don't want to make a too long list. Uh, There are many people who came to us and say, what about adding two or three letters? And then it's becoming too complicated. Of course, we need to look at Pressure ulcers, we need to talk to the family, etc. We don't need a mnemonic for this. Let's try to keep it simple, but that's just to cope with human nature and with the fact that you and I, we sometimes forget some things, and these things sometimes may really make a difference. So, protocols, yes, but within some limits, and let's make sure that it does not decrease the quality of care. It may increase the quality of care when you start from a very low quality of care. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. If you have during the night some doctors in your ICU who are not well-trained ICU doctors, oh, yeah, they need protocols. Give them the surviving sepsis campaign uh, guidelines, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, they will make sure that, indeed that will give a substantial amount of fluids to resuscitate the patient initially, etc. But once you are a better trained intensivist, the protocol can perhaps help you a little bit, but not too much. You need now to use your brain, my friend, and try to integrate a number of variables at the bedside and individualize your management depending on the problems you are facing and the type of patients you have in front of you. And to make sure that you do not forget anything, yes, use checklists. And this will actually help you to take care of uh, all these aspects. It sounds like you
0: are very much an advocate of the details and of good bread and butter medicine, really going through all of the finer, finer points.
1: Well, if we, if we think about it, that's really what makes a difference between good ICU care and less good ICU care. It is an addition of very little things. You said it very well. It is the detail that counts. And, you know, psychologically, too, if you can uh, touch the hand of the patient, have the right words, explain to the patient what's going on. You may spare a lot of sedative agents. When the patient is waking up with a tube in the throat and some discomfort related to that, the bad reaction is just to push the sedatives. The good response is actually to explain to the patient what's going on. And these are perhaps little details, but they can make a big difference. And that's true for all aspects of patient management in the intensive care unit. Yes. And that also points out the biggest
0: conclusion of this paper, which is that that constant bedside care by, for example, the ICU nurse is actually something that is associated with improved outcomes.
1: Absolutely. We still need good people in the ICU. And we should tell our people because that's the best motivation, to tell them that we need them and that they can make a difference in the patient care, that's a fundamental issue. When doctors are not much around, when they are in a bad mood, when they uh, just are angry at everything, well, the quality of care is likely to be uh, suboptimal. Whereas when you are cheering people, encouraging people, and saying thank you from time to time for what they do, then the quality of care can be substantially improved. I have one more question for you about historical trends
0: and the variation in international critical care. I was personally curious about whether you saw any differences in the amount of technology that various critical care units used and whether that made a difference. That was not in the paper, so I'm, I'm not sure if you were able to collect that data. But, for example, you know, the availability and the use of concepts like continuous renal replacement therapy, various radiological studies, even the ability to use mechanical ventilation, do you have any thoughts about how that influences critical care and patients' outcomes?
1: well i will give a two-part response the first part is related to what you raised initially what about the technology actually it's very difficult today to classify icus according to the technology available because virtually all icus except for very 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 poor regions but otherwise they have respirators they have monitoring techniques and it's very difficult to characterize an icu based on the technology available you could say what about ecmo but ecmo is not available in every icu in any country uh, but it would be limited to large centers in many uh, countries and it's good that's how it should be done because uh, we have seen Some studies coming out showing that you need to do at least a minimum number of procedures to do it well. With respect to the second part, related to hemofiltration versus dialysis, for instance, it's very difficult to do this kind of analysis because the type of patients and the situations encountered can be quite different. In other words, most people would use hemofiltration when the patient is unstable, patients in shock, patients who are uh, with major cardiorespiratory problems. But when the patient is stabilized, people would uh, shift to dialysis, especially if the patient is still in renal failure when it's time to consider discharge from ICU to the floor. So you cannot compare the two techniques because the patients will be different. The same is true for modes of mechanical ventilation. That's also what you raised. And, you know, when the patient has severe RDS, we may use volume-controlled mechanical ventilation to limit the tidal volume a bit more easily and monitor respiratory mechanics more conveniently. But when the patient is out of this phase and that's the majority of icu patients of course then we tend to use more pressure support pressure support because the patient can trigger the ventilator it's much more comfortable for the patient when the patient coughs on or has a sigh the respirator will follow and there will be a much better interaction between the patient and his machinery so again, these are different situations, and we cannot really make any meaningful study of these uh, of these differences so you know, it's uh, it's difficult, especially from this type of prevalence study, to try to take some uh, some important elements that could be more generalized thereafter. Got it well, this
0: has been. A incredibly illuminating conversation for me. So thank you for taking the time. And it sounds like our takeaway points really is that the people in the ICU really matter and the importance of the details like we just talked about. I would like to thank you and our audience for joining me today. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCriticalCare for more information. For the Care podcast, I am Dr. Ludwig Lin.
2: Learn how to effectively identify, diagnose, and manage patients who present with signs and symptoms of sepsis at the Sepsis Without Walls Conference to be held September twenty fifth, 2015, at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, USA. This conference is held in partnership with SCCM and Johns Hopkins Medicine. To register, visit www.sccm.org slash sepsis. Ludwig Lynn, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Alta Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lynn did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lynn of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.